Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Garden of Privatised Delights, Britain's Venice Pavilion, opens next week. Radical planning reforms set down in the Queen's speech. The winners of Enfield's Meridian 4 contest named an urban splash in final stage talks to buy Croydon's brick by brick. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My special guest this week is Maddie Kessler. Maddie is co-curator of this year's British Pavilion at Venice, director of Madeleine Kessler Architects, co-founder of Unseen Architecture, and one of the AJ 40 Under 40 rising stars. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here, Merlin. It's great to be here. Our first story relates to something that will dominate next week's architectural media, but has also been covered extensively over the past few years. It is, of course, the Venice Architecture Biennale. This year's British Pavilion, backed by the British Council and dubbed The Garden of Privatised Delights, has been designed by our guest Maddie Kessler and Manager Vergès, and it will be revealed to the world next week. The installation, occupying a series of rooms inside Britain's permanent national pavilion at the centre of Venice's Giardini Exhibition Park, tackles our ongoing debate around privatised public spaces, looking at ways to make pubs, high streets, big data, playgrounds, toilets and garden squares more inclusive. The exhibition, which along with every other national pavilion and show in Venice, has been delayed by a year due to the pandemic, responds to the festival theme How Will We Live Together, set by the Biennale director Hashim Sarkis. Collaborators include the decorators, Built Works, Studio Polpo, Public Works and VPPR. Maddie, what's this all about? Obviously, the content of the pavilion itself must remain under wraps until the big reveal on Thursday the 20th of May. But perhaps you could tell us a bit about what next week will look like, what to look out for and how we can all get a bit of the buzz. Hi, Merlin. Well... I'm super excited that the pavilion is opening next week. It's a project uh, that Manjay and I have been working on for over two years now. Um, And yeah, I mean, the Venice Biennale, it's sort of one of the largest exhibitions um, of architecture in the world where national pavilions all come together um, and explore the most pressing issues about architecture in their country today. 
Um, and so our project, The Garden of Privatised Delights, is exploring privatised public space across the UK. Um, and although the contents of the exhibition are sort of under a strict embargo until next week, um, you can go to the British Council's website uh, to find out more about all the different topics we're exploring from the pub to the high street to the garden square. Um, and yeah, I really can't wait to share this exhibition with everyone next week. So obviously, like you say, while the actual content of the exhibition is yet to be revealed, these themes focusing on privatised public spaces, they've been out there in the world since 2019. Um, but why is this Why is this such an issue, such an important issue for both society and architects right now in the wake of the pandemic, but also even before all of that? Yeah, so um, Manager and I started looking at uh, sort of privatised public space uh, through the lens of a pub uh, with a summer school that we taught together in 2015 at the Architectural Association. Um, and we were really interested in how the pub was sort of a positive uh, type of privatised public space um, and an interior. And we're looking at how it sort of functions almost as the modern day public toilet, the extension of people's living rooms, but was closing down up and down the country. And therefore, how can you start to reinvent the pub for the 21st century? Um, and then through that, we became really interested in this sort of network of privatised public space um, across the UK. And so this isn't a new issue. It's it's an issue that, you know, of um, the, the issues that we're exploring in the pavilion of the closure of the high streets and the pub, um, access to green space. These aren't new issues, um, but over the past year, um, a lot of them have really been heightened and brought to the forefront of a conversation. Um, so in the lockdown, I think people really felt uh, the lack of access uh, to green spaces around them. And people had a very different experience of lockdowns um, if they lived in a house with a garden than they did if they're in a very small apartment without a balcony. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of a lot of the topics have really come to the forefront of the conversation. So we're really um, excited to be exploring them right now. Um, and to be able to share the strategies um, and ideas that we've um, all developed as a, a team uh, next week. Fantastic. And full coverage of the British Pavilion will be on the AJ next week, along with coverage of all the work by British architects out in Venice and also uh, some of the other national pavilions as well. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. Open City friends receive a bunch of perks, including discounts on all Open City events and publications, audio walking tours of amazing parts of London and friends events at special locations around the city. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support for more information. Our second story relates to a raft of new planning reforms featured in the Queen's speech and has been widely covered across the national and built environment media. Opening the new parliament, the Queen said her government would soon introduce laws to modernise the planning system so that more homes can be built. The reforms have been described by Henry Zeffman of the Times as the biggest shake-up of the planning system for more than 70 years and were outlined in a white paper published last summer. The bill, which could now be introduced within the year, is set to streamline the planning process, making it more difficult for existing homeowners to block new housing schemes. The current planning process gives residents two chances to object to developments. 
once when a local plan is drawn up, and again when an individual application is put in. The new system could do away with the second stage, as ministers believe that more affluent homeowners use the planning application stage to object to schemes they do not like. The government will set targets for each area, and the country will be split into zones marked for growth, renewal and protection. Homes, hospitals, schools and shops and offices will get automatic planning approval in growth areas. Development will be restricted in protected areas, but not ruled out. And local design codes will be used to shape the form and quality of new constructions everywhere. Planning reform, in some form or other, has been a major focus of government policy for more than a decade, and yet remains highly controversial, particularly with regards to the siting of new homes. Home ownership is also becoming more and more a dividing political issue. In the 2019 election, for example, around 54% of people in Conservative one seats own their own homes, compared to just 43% in Labour seats. So, Maddy, what's this all about? By removing the opportunity for people to object to planning, are these reforms taking away people's democratic right, their right to have their voices heard, Or, as ministers say, will it prevent people from blocking necessary infrastructure and buildings near their homes for simple house price or aesthetic reasons? Thanks, Merlin. So, I mean, I think that this is clearly quite a political uh, kind of move from the Conservative Party. A lot of ministers are saying that, you know, one of the reasons they did quite well um, in the elections last week um, is due to the fact that they were targeting a lot of homeowners and so this seems to be a move on their part just to try and get more voters um, who are homeowners or are aspiring to buy a home um, and so it feels like a quite sort of short-term thinking uh, way of grappling uh, with policy in our cities um, and I think we're not really taking a step back and learning from other recent planning moves which haven't necessarily been that successful. So, for example, uh, with permitted developments, some research came out recently to say that that's actually led to a sort of drop in standards of the quality of homes that are being provided. Um, And, you know, I think similarly, we could find something similar here. I mean, the devil will be in the detail and we won't really know until we know more about what all these standards and codes are. But I do think there's a real issue that, for example people will just start to design to the base minimum of these codes uh these like it's very nuanced uh when you're building and when you're designing uh for a place and a location um and there's a real danger that these codes will kind of miss out on the kind of the importance of of context um the importance of sort of really meaningful consultation and they'll take they'll start to sort of promote a very kind of tick box way of designing um, it, it is quite hard to tell um, at the moment because it's just kind of fleeting headlines um, and I don't think anyone's really delved that much um, into what, what these planning reforms really are but I, I suppose I'm quite kind of hesitant uh, to think that they're going to be that positive uh, for the future of our country. Speaking at a recent event organised by the Roger Scruton Foundation, Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick said the planning reforms will prevent architects from imposing their dreams on local communities and that power over building design needs to be wrestled back from architects and planners who ignore the views of the public. 
He also said buildings developed in the future should be locally popular and based on the things that people who live in those communities admire and respect. What do you make of all this? I mean, I think everyone in architecture found this absolutely bonkers. Um, I think none of us were aware that we even had any power anymore. Um, I think there's a real issue that people often are just looking for someone to blame and we're setting up society as this way of just blaming one another. And, and in fact, what we need to do is actually work with one another um, and come together in order to kind of see positive and meaningful change in our, in our towns and cities and for them to evolve in a kind of sustainable way that works for our climate and our communities. And I think by just blaming architects or blaming planners, um, it's just not helpful. And it's going to lead to people becoming more and more suspicious of us. Um, and, you know, I, I think in architecture, I don't think there was anyone who agreed with him. The RIBA has already pushed back against the proposed reforms, claiming poorly resourced and mismanaged planning imposes permanent damage on our communities, environment and economy. And also saying boosting housing numbers shouldn't come at the expense of quality. As an architect working on the front line of creating our built environment, are you concerned real damage could be done here to communities and the environment? Or are you confident the proposed design code system could be enough to shape good results? No, I'm, I'm very concerned about this, Merlin. I think there's a huge issue that, um, you know, politicians, they tend to think in these very short term periods of time because they're just after their next votes on the whole. And also that you have people in charge of departments who've got no experience of actually working in that field. I've always found it bizarre that you have someone in charge of education who's never been a teacher, probably set foot in a school and the same with the health and, and you know, now now with housing. Um, and I think it's it's really serious because we need to be thinking much more strategically and long term. You see it with developers. The best sort of developers are the ones who are looking to have a longer term vision. The ones that are just looking for very quick financial gains and returns, they start to destroy parts of our city. And I think politicians are doing that in a similar way through their policy making, because these these kind of pieces of policy and legislation, they have huge implications uh, for our towns and cities and how we build. Um, and, you know, architects and designers, we can only go so far. We can only go respond to these frameworks that we're having to work within. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's really uh, troubling, actually, um, that these kind of reforms can be pushed through. Uh, so quickly and sort of so naively. The last 10 years of Conservative-led government has seen planning being reformed again and again. Why have they still not got it right? And why will this set of reforms work? Or is it just a distraction from some real problems? Part of the reason it's, it's not right is because it's constantly looking at these very short-term, how do we win more votes? But I also think that it's it's impossible to get right. I mean, it's an iterative process. And I think you know, overhauling our planning system. It, it's so ludicrously complicated. Um, and I think everyone's looking for someone to blame. Everyone's looking for a quick fix. And that's just an impossible ask. And I think you almost need a separate body that can be almost non-politically affiliated uh, to look at the much longer term strategic vision of how we should be developing our land. I also, I, I take huge issue with the fact that we're still constantly talking about building new buildings. Rather, what, why isn't our, our sort of policy 
looking more at how we can retrofit buildings and you know the AJ did a really good retrofit first campaign and they were looking at how VAT is uh, sort of chargeable on refurbishing buildings but it's not on new builds and I think you know fixing policies like that I think would you know they'd have a very quick and huge um, impact on the way that we're designing and building in a really positive way uh, for our climate as well as our communities. And and certainly, and also I, I should have mentioned this in the introduction, but as somebody who's who is part of the National Infrastructure Commission, um, you know, clearly there is an important point to be made about strategically planning both retrofits and new homes. I mean, in the past, you know, we had things like Milton Keynes being built or Thamesmead, uh, for example, which have created homes for lots of people. Is that the kind of epic scale that we need to be thinking Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think we do need to be thinking more strategically and more long term. And I think that is something amazing about the National Infrastructure Commission. When they when they release their national infrastructure assessment, it's sort of looking at a 50 year vision, which is quite unusual uh, compared to this constant kind of five year term thinking. And I think if you were to leave uh, just infrastructure up to the government, they'd just be looking at how do you solve potholes rather than, you know, really looking at the kind of more strategic vision of um, how do we better embed design, for example, in policy making and, and strategy making. Um, the reason I got involved with it originally was because I was often working on sites and I was like, who's even decided that's where the site should be? You know, as an architect, you only have so much control because you're kind of given what you're given. Um, and I was like, who, who's even designing this? And, and, you know, why aren't architects and designers getting involved at the more strategic stages? Um, and I think often it's because, you know, we stay in our little bubble and no one really knows what it is we do because everyone just assumes an architect is just someone who designs and builds and doesn't realise that we can actually contribute in other ways. Thinking back to Robert Jenrick's remarks, is this actually all about style? It seems possible that the subtext of all this seems to be age-old bashing of modernism. Are these planning reforms partly all about promoting classical and traditional architectural styles, the kind of styles that are popular with certain conservatives? Are these bad reforms or just bad for modernists? I, th- I think this issue goes back to the misunderstanding of what architecture is, uh, because architecture and design are more than just aesthetics. You know, it's about good placemaking. It's about making sure you get your your, strat- your streets and your master plan, your public realm, all of that in the right place. Um, and, you know, I think if we reduce architecture down to just the design of facades, um, that's a real mistake. Um, you know, it's, it's really kind of siloing it. Um, and it, actually, that doesn't lead to good city making at all. I mean, architecture, it's about uh, placemaking. It's about working with communities. It's, it's so much more than just an aesthetic. And I think also you can't really decide what the aesthetic of a building or a place is going to be until you go through this very kind of iterative design process that's responding to context, that's responding to consultation. And when I say consultation, I mean really meaningful consultation, not just your tick box consultation, uh, which sounds to me like what this could be encouraging. Um, Although, I mean, the one, one kind of vaguely positive thing I did read when I was reading um, earlier about this was that um, it was raised that young people often aren't really part of the planning process um, and could this be a way to bring them into the process more 
but um, I don't think that this is necessarily the answer. But, you know, I think that's quite an important point that we should be engaging more with young people and allowing them to have more of a say in their city. Um, but again, I don't think that's necessarily just an aesthetic thing. It's about, you know, what kind of services and things would you want to see? Um, how do we open up your public spaces, for example, so that young people can have better access to them? Um, it's, it's a much more nuanced and larger discussion than just an aesthetic. Although, of course, young people don't really go for traditional architecture. They're more into cool stuff. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I'm a big advocate for our, our cities should be fun and playful and joyful and often they're far too grey and, you know, we need to inject more colour and, and fun into our everyday lives. Um, and to me, like, the most interesting parts of a city are the really kind of everyday places and places like the street. Um, and, and that is architecture, but I think that the way that architecture is being perceived is that it's just about facades and how something looks. Our next story was an AJ exclusive, revealing the winning team in Enfield Council's Meridian 4 competition to deliver 800 council homes at the heart of the Meridian Water Master Plan. The team, led by Karakusevic Carson Architects, featuring McCrana Lavington Architects, Mary Duggan Architects, Architecture Doing Place, Wallace Liu, Aljawad Pike, Office Cyan and Sarah Hersey, won the contest. As part of their winning bid, the consortium has promised to deliver an extensive programme of community education, mentorship, work placements and a fully paid architecture degree scholarship. In a bid to boost community engagement, only firms which teamed up with a practice 50% led by people of colour, also featuring a 50% woman-led practice and a local outfit from Edmonton, were eligible to bid for the commission, which is one of the latest in the Meridian Water Master Plan. Applicants were also required to commit to an architectural education scholarship programme for at least one young person living in Edmonton, who will be provided with all university fees, a living allowance and the provision of a one-year paid work um, placement at the London Living Wage or above. Announcing the competition, Enfield Council's Programme Director for the £6 billion Regeneration, Peter George, said it was up to the public sector to send a clear message about the lack of diversity in the architectural community. So Maddie, what's this all about? This seems like a shining example of diversity in architecture, with a strong emphasis in the winning teams on being female-led, led by people of colour and locally based. Is this the solution to making architecture more diverse, or just the beginning of something bigger and even more ambitious, addressing the root causes of this lack of diversity in the first place? I think it's definitely the latter. This is this is just the beginning. Um, I. I mean, this is a project that's really close to my heart because my grandparents have lived in Enfield for over 70 years. So um, I grew up uh, very familiar with the area and um, it's an area I'm quite passionate about. Um, and I think foremost, this is actually a really fantastic team. Like it's a really talented team. And I don't think they're there just because they're a, di a diverse team. They're there because they're really, really good. Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting way that the procurement's been set up um, on this competition. Um, I think often um, it's it can feel like it's quite tokenistic uh, when local authorities are trying to um, sort of introduce diversity into teams, but this, this feels much better thought through. 
Um, and I think it's really exciting um, to see. I think Peter George has done a fantastic job at just kind of challenging the procurement system. And I really hope um, other local authorities sort of take note. Um, and of course, you can always go further. And so I really hope this is just a starting point where, you know, eventually this this is just the norm. So that Meridian Water boss, P- Peter George, um, he said that a really interesting remark. He said, empathy has limitations. Um, you know, and that is a key reason why diversity is needed in the design teams themselves. Um, now, one criteria in the bidding process was the involvement of a local firm. So I think the, the, the local firm, the winning one in the bid was uh, Wallace Lou. But I mean, what sort of impact do you think having local design talent could have in the creation of new homes for Edmonton in particular? Because it's such a unique place within en- Enfield as well. Yeah, I think I think it's so important to have local knowledge in a design team. No one knows their local area. Area, like the people who live there and sort of grow up there and are surrounded by that area in their everyday lives and I kind of feel like it's a requirement that should be a no-brainer to have on these uh, sort of procurement processes um, I mean, it's just, it's just so beneficial to have local people there uh, for the knowledge they bring for the way they can um, help with sort of uh, meaningful consultation um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a great thing. So a fair amount of attention has been paid to the diversity of the winning architects team. Um, however, we all know that in massive projects like these, the architects are only one part of the process. Should we also be talking about increasing diversity and inclusion in the wider engineering and construction industry and the fact, you know, for example, so few, so few women work on construction sites? Um, why do you think architects are having to take the brunt of this responsibility to start the move forward towards better diversity? Um, is it that they're an easy target or perhaps is it actually that they're the best people to influence systemic change? I don't know if I see it as we're taking the brunt of the responsibility. I think it's everyone's uh, responsibility and it's it's a much larger problem than just in our profession. You know, it's a societal um, issue as well. We're in an exciting position where we are sort of setting the standards and setting the way and and testing the waters for, for new ways to be able to do things um but yeah absolutely it it needs to be more than just within architecture uh that these conversations and changes are happening have we found ourselves in quite a unique place where it's now the private sector it's now the suppliers of architectural services that are increasing uh, access to this profession, uh, when if we were to wind the clock back in the past, um, you know, people studying architecture would get grants. You know, the cost of the architecture course is a significant reason that puts people off studying architecture. We, we, we now find ourselves where instead it's, it's, it's the private sector and sometimes quite poorly resourced players in the private sector, which are making up for a kind of shortfall in, in the resourcing of education itself, the education we need for an inclusive society that can produce the built environment that we need to prosper and, and to do justice to the needs of who we are, right? Um, where does this all end? Yeah, I mean, we do need to be addressing those root causes of education, for example. I mean, the cost of architectural education just makes it such a prohibitive profession for many people to go into. Um, when I was studying, the fees were like a thousand pounds and that felt expensive. And now they're nine grand. You know, it, it's just insane. The final story was again covered in the AJ, and it's all to do with the looming potential sale of Croydon's brick by brick housing development arm to the developer Urban Splash. 
Though not yet finalised, discussions between the beleaguered council and the acclaimed Northern England-focused developer are said to be in the advanced stages. If approved by Croydon Council, Manchester-based Urban Splash would snap up all of Brick by Brick's existing assets, including its architecture department, uh, the AJ 40 Under 40 uh, celebrated Common Ground, and its impressive development pipeline. It is unclear whether Brick by Brick's current leadership team, headed by Chief Executive Colm Lacey, or the architects working on individual projects could be retained if Splash goes ahead with the purchase. Some of London's most exciting design talents have been working on housing design for the company, including May, Gort Scott, Archeo, Threefold, Denizen Works, Ruff, Stitch, Hayhurst & Co and Mary Duggan Architects. If inked, the sale would wipe out almost all of the council's debt related to brick by brick. The talks come after Croydon Council effectively declared itself bankrupt in November, admitting it was unable to fill a £66 million hole in its finances. A report by accountancy firm Grant Thornton revealed that more than £200 million had been lent to brick by brick, but that no dividends and no interest payments had ever been made, including an interest payment originally due in spring 2019. Obviously, that's two years ago. It also found that Brick by Brick repeatedly pushed back the date by which it expected to cover its own funding from housing receipts and the date at which it would repay its loans to Croydon Council. So, Maddie, Urban Splash, they're a very trendy firm, famous for regenerating decaying industrial buildings in the north of England, this will be their first venture into London. Why do you think they're making this move now? And what could it mean for architects? Yeah, um, I think this is a really exciting um, potential development, actually. Um, I thought, you know, it was, a, it was a real shame when the news came out about Brick by Brick, um, because it really sounded like it had come down to poor financial management. Um, and, you know, it wasn't really necessarily the, the fault of many people who are, who are kind of having a real ambition to kind of really challenge um, and transform the way that design is embedded into um, housing today. Um, and I think as you were reading that question, what really came to light for me was the number of architecture firms who, you know, this is actually really important for. And, you know, it, it's actually really going to affect um, their projects and um, their, their kind of working lives um this this deal so it is actually really important for the architecture industry and they're all really really good firms and i think what's really interesting is urban splash and brick by brick have worked similarly with kind of really exciting design-led uh, practices um and so i think it is hopefully going to be really beneficial to the profession um to have this kind of public private partnership which are really interested in design-led practices and sort of a sustainable and, and long-term vision for our cities. Urban Splash also they work a lot with existing buildings which I think is really great potentially as well to have a developer that's interested um, not in necessarily demolishing everything but working with what we have. Maddie it's been a great pleasure having you on the London this week. I uh, hope you can join us again soon to discuss more of the important themes arising from the Garden of Privatised Delights, your P British pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale, uh, which runs from May until November. Um, where can our listeners uh, keep up to speed with all the things you're doing? Where should they look? You can go to the British Council's website to find out more about the Garden of Privatised Delights. 
Um, we have a series of short films where we've, uh, which we filmed with each of the RIM designers, uh, looking at the different types of privatised public spaces that they're exploring around the UK. Um, and then myself, um, I'm on social media. You can also go to uh, madelinecastler.com and unseenarchitecture.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you for being on the show this week. Uh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.